one another. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Thank you that we get to sing about that, that we get to reflect on that truth. Father, thank you that that truth has permeated our souls for those of us who are in Christ. It has opened our eyes to the truth of who you are and who we are in our desperate need of a Savior. And thank you that uh, we now get to look into your word and, Lord, be refreshed, be encouraged, be challenged. And as a result of the word going into us and us receiving it as the right kind of soil, good soil, that it goes in and that it changes our hearts, it conforms us more to the image of Christ. And we are so thankful for that. Father, we're thankful that you don't leave us in the state that we're in, certainly as sinners on our way to hell, but that you save us from that. And then as believers, that you continue to cleanse us daily with the sanctification that you bring through your spirit and your word. We love you, and we commit our time to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Give me one second. I'm going to transition here. All right, we'll just hope for the best is what we're going to do. You guys doing all right? I went to the 8 o'clock service. You know, it's, it's all the rage. It really was. And uh, this is what happens when I do something that's out of routine in my life. The rest of my life flips upside down. So I forget to put on a mic. Projector doesn't work. But here we are. And you can hear me? And we have Bibles? <laughs> That's awesome. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. You know what's funny about the 8 o'clock service, by the way? Today, uh, you know, so it starts out, people, there's a good, good amount of people there at 8. But then it's the people who think they're coming to the 8 o'clock service who show up about 8.25 Right, and they're rolling in all hot after all the music. It's like, I don't know if this really counts. But if you were some of those people, give that some thought. Titus 1. Titus 1, let me read verses 5 through 9. And we'll begin to think through this. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Jerry Ragg, in his book, Exemplary Spiritual Leadership, 
defines biblical leadership this way. He says, leadership is the God-given ability to influence others through the power of a godly life and the wisdom gained in the practice of truth. Leadership is essential for any entity to operate successfully, but it is especially necessary for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be equipped with faithful leadership. And it is Christ in his kindness who has both qualified and gifted men to lead his church to carry out the mandate and the mission of his church that he purchased with his own precious blood. And the mission of the church, in a nutshell, is this. It is to worship the triune God. It is to equip the saints for ministry. And it is to evangelize the lost with the gospel. And unfortunately, there are a lot of issues within the church today because churches are governed by leadership who are not qualified biblically. For instance, elders who haven't been vetted in regard to their character or their giftedness to teach and to manage. We're going to walk through, over the next couple of weeks, these qualifications, these character qualifications that are listed in Titus 1, 5 through 9, that, that parallel 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the reality is the elders have to be qualified, gifted men, and and it's an objective calling. I'm just going to say this at the outset. You'll hear this a lot over the next couple of weeks. But, but it's an objective calling. And, and, and a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people, and, and I deal with our seminary students here. I, I love that. And I, I deal with lots of phone calls, people saying, hey, I want, to, I want to come and I want to go to seminary. I think I should be a pastor. And I ask that question, why? Why do you think you should be a pastor? Why do you want to be a pastor? And so they'll go on to tell me, you know, you know, I had this experience, or I feel this way, or I love to do this, and, and all of these different things. And, and a lot of those things are good, because there is an, an aspiration to be an elder. There is a desire there that's necessary. 1 Timothy 3.1 tells us that. If you aspire to the, to the work of an elder, that is a good thing. And so that is one of, the, one of the aspects of the calling. But a lot of people make decisions, uproot their lives to go into the ministry because they have this desire. Maybe they had a conversation with somebody and it went really well and that person maybe responded to the gospel or maybe they saw that person grow and, and they get excited about that and think, okay, this is what I need to do with the rest of my life vocationally. The issue is, is that the calling to be a pastor, the calling to be an elder is far more than just a desire. It includes a desire. If a guy doesn't have the desire then he can't pursue it. But it only starts with the desire. You see, the, the people that God calls, the people that God gifts, the gifted men that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives to his church have a desire for the work of an elder, the work that goes along with being a pastor and elder. They're qualified biblically, which is what we're going to work through in our text. And they're gifted specifically. They're gifted both to teach and they're gifted to manage. And we're going to see that as we go through. And so I end up having that conversation with a lot of guys. And what's very interesting is that many people who aspire to ministry, who think about this, don't consider the objective calling. 
For many people, it's a very subjective calling. You know, until I actually got into ministry in, in God's providence, some of you know that story, some of you know it was just kind of this windy road. The Lord took me down, and all of a sudden I was in ministry and, and serving people, and I thought, oh, this is good. People were affirming me. It was a good thing. But I didn't really go about it the right way. The reason I ended up in ministry is because I had this desire when I was 14 years old. I mean, we talk about how we, may, we don't want to make um, decisions based on feelings, right? We make, make decisions based on truth. Feelings are all a part of things, but I can tell you, I was 14 years old, I was at a camp. Like, I am that typical guy. <laughs> at a camp, we're singing a song. I think it was, oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. You guys remember that one? And, you know, step by step, it's an old camp song, an old song. And I'm standing there, I'm like, I think I'm going to go into ministry. I'm 14 years old. Like, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. Now, the Lord used that and brought me to a point, but, but for me to go make decisions based on that, that was unwise. And so we have these conversations, us and you know, me and these guys, and it's amazing. Many people just think that's why you go become an elder. That's why you go become a pastor. Paul shows us that that is not necessarily the case. That the Bible has different things to say about a person who, who aspires to be an elder, who aspires to be a pastor. And so you have these churches who, who get these elders who aren't vetted in regards to those three things, aren't vetted in their genuine desire for the work. They aren't vetted in their character qualities. They aren't vetted in their giftedness or their ability to manage. And so you have churches that struggle. You have men who get put in positions because of their clout in the business world or in the community. There's a lot of churches that make... Elders make men elders in their church because of the clout they hold in the business world. In fact, I had lunch with a guy recently who came out of a church. You would know it if I gave it to you. Came out of a church, and he was kind of, you know, kind of in the upper echelon of people in that church. And he said, the way this church chooses elders is they have this retreat where they invite all the kind of the richest people and the best givers in the church, and they choose their elders from the men in that retreat. That's a bad decision, by the way. You have some smaller churches seeking to do the, the best that they can, and they presumptuously fill the elder office with just any man in their church who is willing to volunteer. I was a part of smaller churches. I watched this happen. I served as a pastor at a church where I had men, they definitely loved Christ. They served Christ, but there were some of those men who were not gifted to teach. You have churches who have caved to the clear teaching of the scriptures, to the whims of the day, and they now have women who serve as elders in the church with the Bible. The Bible clearly forbids. You have some churches simply that have warm bodies filling roles because they have to have somebody in these positions, but some of these men aren't even believers. When churches depart from the scriptures in regard to the blueprint laid out for them, uh, in terms of establishing church leadership, they can end up a mess. They can end up a disaster. See, Crete, where Titus is, and Paul is writing Titus this letter, Crete had been evangelized by the Apostle Paul and by Titus, and churches had been established. However, as we noted last time, the Judaizers those who mix kind of those Jewish traditional works with the gospel message and say you have to, you have to 
you know, proselytized to become a Jew, and you also have to believe in the gospel to actually be a Christian. Those Judaizers had come in, and they had also been influencing the churches. And as we see in verse 5, which we just read, things were out of order in the churches on the island of Crete. How do we know that? Well, Paul says he, he left Titus in Crete so that he could set in order what remains. That clearly indicates that there was something out of order, that, that things were not as they should be. And so Titus had a responsibility, he had a job. And these churches were a bit of a mess. You see, Crete was a large Mediterranean island. It covered about 3,000 square miles. And it consisted of, of, of many towns. And the city was marked by rebellious people, by liars and gluttons, as we will see more as we, when we get into verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1. And we know that these towns had churches in them. Why? Because if you look at verse 5, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So there were churches there. It's not just appointing elders to just be by themselves, these individuals. There were actual churches that had been established, and Paul told Titus, you need to go appoint elders in every city. You see, what we see laid out clearly in Paul's directive to Titus is that these churches that were in all of these towns we're in need of qualified, godly leaders. And this city was in need of these churches to be salt and light in its midst. And in verses 5 through 9, we will examine these next couple of weeks. As we will examine this next couple of weeks, we see the reason why Titus was left in Crete by the Apostle Paul. More specifically, we're going to see Three observations regarding Titus's objective in Crete, which provide believers with a, bl- a blueprint for establishing church leadership. But before we take note of these observations, this morning I want us to consider verse 5, which is where this twofold directive is stated. You know, verse 5 says this, it says, For this reason, for this purpose, Paul says, I left you in Crete. That verb, left there, gives the sense of being deployed for a particular mission. You understand that language and you think of the military. Those who sign up to go into the Army, the Air Force, Marines, the Navy, they can get deployed overseas. They can get sent there for a specific time, for a specific mission. That's this verb in verse 5. Titus was left on the island of Crete to accomplish a particular task. He had been deployed to Crete, so to speak. And his mission wasn't vague, and it wasn't unclear. Titus wasn't there just roaming around, wondering what he was supposed to do. Notice the remainder of verse 5. It says, first, as we already mentioned, he was, set, he was to set in order those things which remain from when, when he and Paul had ministered together there, planting churches. Setting in order what remains. This, this involved correcting the issues that had developed there since the churches had been planted. Issues that had been created for the lack of godly leadership. Setting things in order also involved correcting the false teaching that had begun to influence the churches that they had planted from the Judaizers, from the pagan society around them. 
A second part of this objective, and really the primary way he was to set those things in order, don't miss this, was by appointing elders in every city on the island. That was how this was supposed to take place. So yes, it is a two-fold objective that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, but it is by the appointing of elders in every city that Titus was then going to be able to set in order what remains. In other words, in order for problems to be addressed, for bad theology to be corrected, good theology to be taught, and mature believers to be produced, they needed, there needed to be a structure in place and a plan carried out. And this was not only true for the churches in Crete, it is true for every church that has ever been established. Right thinking, sanctified lives, and maturity in the Christian life, which leads to being salt and light in the culture, are not things that just happen because a place calls themselves a church and does some of the church things. It doesn't just happen telepathically because you sit in a place like this that you simply become able to think right. You simply become able to be sanctified. You simply become mature. Just because we call ourselves a church doesn't mean that those things happen. You see, those things happen by the means that God has prescribed, which is through gifted men teaching and equipping and modeling the truth of the Word of God to the people of God. And this prescription is laid out clearly in Ephesians chapter 4. So I want you to turn with me. You see on your sheets there, it says a foundational detour. Yes, it's planned. We're going to go to Ephesians 4 because this foundation needs to be clearly established in our minds. We have to understand why, why God has given these gifted leaders to the church, what that produces. Because when we understand that, we can come back and really understand what Paul is telling Titus to do. I want you to notice First, as you are there in Ephesians 4 now, I want you to notice, first of all, verse 7. He says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we're in the second half of Ephesians, and when we get to Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the position of the Christian that, that has been established because God has saved believers in verse, chapters 1 through 3. And now you have the practice of the Christian. You have, what do we do now that we are Christians? You have... You have this kind of this progressive sanctification process laid out in many ways. And so he gets down here in verse four, in chapter seven, chapter four, verse seven. And he is going to begin talking about how God has supernaturally gifted believers by his spirit, according to his divine prerogative, for his glory to edify the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. He has gifted every single individual for this purpose. Now drop down to verse 11. Verse 11, he says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors, and some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, 
to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So when you drop down to verse 11, actually verses 11 through 16, Paul goes in to this specific category of gifts. Now, we're not going to take time to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, but 1 Peter chapter 4 talks about two different categories of gifts that God gives to the church. Supernatural gifts. They're, they're serving gifts and there's speaking gifts. There's those in the church who serve in various ways and are gifted to do that. And there are those in the church who God has gifted to speak. And that idea of speaking is, is the idea of a, of a public proclamation, of the ability to explain the scriptures, to, to call people to obey the scriptures, to bring the truth of the word of God to bear on the hearts and the lives of individuals. And so you have those two categories. And if you're sitting here and you're in Christ, you have either been gifted to serve or you have been gifted to speak. That's what 1 Peter 4 describes to us. When we get down to verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 4, we have Paul giving us these people who have been gifted to speak, these speaking gifts. And they're laid out for us in verse 11. And the first two categories of gifted men that are mentioned there in verse 11 are the apostles and the prophets. And these two categories of men were for the purpose of establishing the foundation of the church. And if you go back into the book of Ephesians, you see that in Ephesians chapter 2. I believe it's verse 20. That they were to be the establishment, they were to help establish the church, and they were to be used by the Spirit of God to complete the Scriptures. And we know that these two categories of men are no longer active today. Listen, there are a lot of churches who say that there are still apostles and prophets. Well, we know that those two gifts are no longer active today because their specific purpose came to the end with the death of the final apostle and the completion of the canon of scriptures. And so those two gifts are no longer active in the church today. They were absolutely essential, absolutely necessary for the early church as God was using them to establish the foundation of the church and to, to complete the canon uh, of scriptures that we have. However, the other three categories of gifted men listed in verse 11 continue to be active and absolutely essential to Christ's church today. And you see those there. And some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. And what I want you to focus on is is what comes after verse 11 in verses 12 through 16, in which we see both the purpose and the results of Christ gifting the church with these men. And so you have these, 
men who will fill these gifts of, of speaking, of communicating the truth to the church. One of these men is gifted more towards the actual proclamation of the gospel and people coming to faith in Christ. The other slant of, uh, of these particular gifted men is those who teach the word of God on a regular basis, who proclaim the truth week after week and, and the body of Christ joins together and listens to the truth and is, is impacted by that truth and is edified by that truth and grows as they adhere to that truth. And so what we have then in verses 12 through 16 is we have the purpose of this, these men's ministry laid out, and then we have the result of these men's ministry. And it's helpful for us to know this foundationally. And so that's why I want us to see this. You know, verses 12 through 13, they give us this purpose. They identify the purpose. The key verb you need to understand in this text is in verse 11, and he gave, that is the Spirit of God, supernaturally gave to the church these gifted men. It is God's gift to the church. Now you have this purpose that begins in verse 12. For, first of all, the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now there are two steps listed in verse 12 that we, we need to think through. You know, you think about walking up a stairway some people walk up stairways different than others. They, some people bound super long legs. Some people have super short legs and they trouble getting their feet all the way up and they trip up the stairs. That's more like me. I'm kind of disproportional and uh, I don't lift my legs high enough. Also, it hurts. My muscles are so tight. Um, I was doing a youth retreat one time in Colorado and uh, we went and visited this castle. This castle's amazing. Actually, over if you know where Rocky Wyatt lives, it's over near Rocky Wyatt, over near Rye, Colorado. And uh, we went to visit this castle, and I didn't know what I was going to see. Turns out this guy had spent like 60 years of his life building this castle by hand. It's amazing. And, and it's, it's not finished, but it is cool. And, and there are these different stairways on the castle, and you can just kind of wander through there and... And, you know, you just kind of walk. It's got those stairways that go all the way up. To, and super tall, super tall. I mean, you walk up this narrow stairway. And I don't love, like, getting up on something and looking down. I mean, I wouldn't say I have, like, this massive fear of heights. But, but I don't make a habit of it, like, getting up on top of high things. I don't like ladders. And so you're just walking up, and you just get skinnier and skinnier all the way to the top, and you're just looking down. It's over this ledge. You're like... You know, hopefully this has a good foundation because the castle looks like it's just going to fall off the mountain. It's just on this cliff. But you don't get up that, that castle. There's no other way to get up that castle unless you go up those steps. And you have to go up those steps in order. You're not, you know, you can't just work your way to the top with some sort of rope. I mean, I guess, I guess if you threw the rope up there and kind of, I don't know. But you're not going to do that. You're going to go up one step at a time. There's a lot of steps. The method that's laid out for men in the church to, to bring people to maturity is a step-by-step -step process. You don't shortcut the process. It's like 
You're walking on the top of that castle. You're not just like getting up there. You have a chopper or something like that. But you are going to walk up those steps. The same is true in the church. I think sometimes we think about maturity in the church. We think about getting to a mature point as Christians, and we just, we just want to jump over so many of the steps that the Bible gives us. We want to short-circuit the growth process. And I think the desire in that's okay. We want to be like Christ. I mean, we want to, we want to stop sinning. <laughs> we, we want to grow. We want to, be, we want to love Christ more. We want to, serve the Christ be- we want to serve Christ better. And those are good aspirations. But, but, the, but the method and the process is, is laid out. And you can't shortcut that. You can't short-circuit that. Verse 12 shows us how those steps have to be taken in order. It says, first of all there, in verse 12, he gives us this recipe of maturity. The recipe of maturity. In the first part of of verse 12, you have becoming equipped for service. If you're going to become mature, if these gifted men are going to lead the church to become mature, the people, first of all, have to become equipped for service. He says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So these saints have to be edified. They have to grow. They have to continue to become more like Christ. This happens. A person begins to become established in the truth by, by first of all, being a part of the body of Christ. By being at the events where the word of God is taught. They become equipped for service by by being discipled. By being taught. By learning what it means to to serve. Some people want to jump right in. They become a Christian. They just want to do all these things. And and it's awesome. Again, that, that, that resolve and that desire is awesome. But there has to be a time of equipping. Think about the Apostle Paul for a minute. And he got saved on that road to Damascus. And he went and met Ananias. Eventually those things fell off his eyes. He could see again after a few days. And then like Paul disappears for a few years. And later on in his ministry, he says that he was, he was, he was gone. He was being trained. <laughs> he was being trained by the Lord. But he was, he was being trained. He was gone. He didn't just jump onto the scene immediately. But there was this time that, that he was discipled, that he was trained. And we don't know how that entire process worked, but we know that because he mentions it later on as he's, he's talking to some of the various churches. As you think about becoming equipped for service, you need to think about men being placed in the church those whom God has given to the church to train people to do the work of the ministry. That's the purpose. That happens by being under regular preaching and teaching. In the context of our church, that happens by, by going involving yourself in classes like Fundamentals of the Faith and the Evangelism class, by working through partners, by being a part of your small groups, by learning to practice spiritual disciplines, 
That's all involved in this e- equipping process. And so God gives men to the church to teach the truth, to, to be those who proclaim the truth, and then who take people and, and disciple them and train them in the various settings that we do. And what happens is that you then become equipped for service. You begin to know more things about the Lord. You begin to have a conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden it's not, I'm terrified to share the gospel with this person, or I have no idea how to get to the gospel with this person. It's like, oh, no, I've been trained in this. Like, I'm going to talk about God. (laughs) I'm going to talk about how this person in front of me, I know that they are a pagan, and then they need to come to grips with the reality of who God is, that he is holy. And you start taking them down that path. Why? Because you've been equipped to do that. I remember for the longest time, kind of in my teenage years, like the thought of having a, an evangelistic discussion with somebody was terrifying to me. But when you learn the four fundamental pillars of sharing the gospel with somebody, you just know you have to get to that first pillar and then you're going to work your way through. That, that is what it means to, to become equipped. And it doesn't just happen with sharing the gospel. It happens in, uh, you know, how do, I, how do I start doing my Bible study? How, how do I develop a, a prayer life that's more than just, Lord, please be with my cat and help him to stop licking, licking himself, right? That's what Tom talked about last week. You know, it's more than that, right? It's more than those things. It's, it becomes a prayer life that, that Paul has in Ephesians chapter 3. It, it becomes a prayer life like the Lord Jesus had in, in John 17. Now, how do I get there? Well, you, you, you start doing these things. You, you start having people show you how to do these things. You attend particular classes. You start meeting together as groups. And all of a sudden, you have a direction. Right? You have a path forward. And, and I think many of you can test to that experience. Because I think that's how it works. And so you have this... This responsibility of the men who God gives to the church to help people become equipped. Why? Because people are to be the ones who do the ministry. As you spread out from this place, you are going to be salt and light to a world. As you're in this place, you're here for the edification of other believers, to serve them and to love them and to help them. And becoming equipped for for service does that. And so, so that begins this recipe of maturity. And that's the first step. You have to do that step first. You have to become equipped. But then look at the second part of verse 12. He says, to the building up of the body of Christ. This is what happens when people become equipped for service. They become an equipper through service. So they become equipped for service, and then they become an equipper through service. So a person is discipled. A person begins to be established in the faith. And now all of a sudden, they are put in positions to begin to serve the body of Christ. And what happens? More people get established. More people come to Christ. More people grow in their faith. To this end, to the building up of the body of Christ, the the body of Christ is edified. The, The body of Christ is encouraged. The body of Christ flourishes it continues to grow certainly spiritually and it grows numerically but those steps in order are are essential so it begins there verse 12 with this recipe of maturity and then he moves into verse 13 and he gives us the marks of maturity 
gives us the marks of maturity. This is until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God for to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The marks of maturity begin with this. They begin with corporate unity in the faith. How do I know I'm becoming mature? How do I know that this process is taking place? How do I know that I'm growing? How do I know that, that my service matters? How do I know that this whole process that God has prescribed is taking place? Well, it begins with the fact that we begin to have this corporate unity of the faith. The text says that this unity of the faith is centered on the right or true knowledge of the Son of God. We become of one mind. We are centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in Him. We trust in Him. We worship Him. We know Him. We want to proclaim Him. We want everything we do to glorify Him. This knowledge that he speaks of, it's an intimate knowledge. It's, it's knowledge which produces genuine belief focused on the deity of Christ. This is embracing Jesus as the Holy One, as, as people begin to do that. As people come and they, they begin to embrace Christ, they, they come to faith, you start to see this unity build. You start to see this unity grow. This is embracing Jesus as the suffering servant and, and the empowered Lord. As Paul did in Philippians chapter 3. This is embracing a comprehensive understanding of Christ, his person and his work. That's the first mark of maturity is that, that Corporately, the church begins to do this. So, so the corporate body of Christ is made up by individuals. And so this involves every individual. They're being equipped. They're being trained. And they're beginning to serve themselves. And what's happening is, is all of these individuals together, this collective body, begin, begins to become more and more about Christ. There's a deeper love and admiration for Christ. There's, there's a deeper satisfaction in Christ. There's a deeper joy that is continuing to grow because people are understanding Christ in a deeper way. That's, that's, what's, that's what happens. That's, that's why God gives gifted men to the church to, to set that process in order so that we all come to a place where we are unified around the reality of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ where we genuinely love him. We genuinely want to worship him, serve him. Unity of faith built upon the knowledge of Christ. It results in a second mark that you see there in verse 13, which is corporate maturity. Corporate maturity. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. That's that goal. That's what's taking place as more and more people are, are grounded in the faith. As more and more people begin to serve and begin to do the work of the ministry. Christ is being proclaimed. Christ is being talked about. Christ is being 
loved. He's being worshipped. He's, he's being served. He's being obeyed. And he says that, unif- unif- unit, that unity of the faith that is based on the knowledge of the Son of God the results in maturity. To a, to a mature man, the grammar here is what's called a collective singular, meaning that Paul is referring to the church as a whole. A collective group of saints. Listen, a mark of a mature church is when every saint collectively is mature. That's the goal. It's not just that people come. It's not just that people identify with a, with a worship service and a small group. It's not that just a person can say, yeah, I go to Countryside Bible Church and have some sort of loose connection. That's not the end goal. The end goal that God set into motion by gifting His church with gifted men to proclaim the truth is the maturity of every single Christian. Paul says that in Colossians 1, doesn't he? He says that at the end of the book. He says, we proclaim him, the end of chapter 1 rather, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then he says, for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. What, what? What we need to understand is that the the goal of the church is to become mature. Every single Christian trained. Every single Christian serving. Every single Christian living in the world as salt and light for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, maturity is present when the church reflects Christ's virtues and likeness in their lives. That's how we know that's one of the marks of this, is when every Christian is getting to that point. In Galatians 4.19, Paul said, My children, with whom I am again in labor, until Christ is formed in you. Paul considered his work, and he, he says that we just read in, in Colossians 1.29, but he considers this work in the lives of believers, bringing them to the point of maturity as labor, as intense, arduous labor, almost trudging through deep parts of, of mud, so to speak, to get a person to where they need to be kind of the picture. This is until Christ is formed in you. That is the goal. That is the goal. You have this unity of faith that is centered around the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's a mark. Begin to see that. But, but that's, that then pushes towards the goal of being formed in Christ completely. This, this mature man. Christians who are able to make wise decisions. Christians who are able to lead their families to honor Christ. Christians who are able to go out into this world 
and to genuinely be salt, to be that preservative and to be light, to, to cast the gospel far and wide. That's the goal. It's not just showing up here at 9.30 on Sunday morning or 7 o'clock Wednesday night or 8, 9.30 or 11 o'clock over there on Sunday mornings. It's not that. The goal is maturity in the faith. Becoming the Christian who God wants you to be. Becoming a genuine God-fearer. That's the goal. Those are the marks of maturity. In verses 14 through 16, then, we see the practical results of God's gift to the church, of these gifted men. The practical results of maturity. Verse 14, he says, as a result... So we know that he's going to draw out implications here. We are no longer to be children tossed, to and, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of it, each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. That first practical result is found in verse 14, and it's this. It's maturity results in being spiritually discerning. Maturity results in being spiritually discerning. Discernment and protection are described in verse 14. We are no longer children tossed to and here by waves of doctrine, every wind of doctrine, and the trickery of men, and craftiness, and deceitful scheming. To be discerning is to be able to perceive to recognize or distinguish that which is true from that which is error. You see, someone who is in Christ and being equipped in the faith and and equipping others will be someone who avoids being duped by all the quasi-Christian garbage out there that is not true to the Scripture. You begin talking to somebody who claims to be in Christ. Maybe they've claimed to be in Christ for a long time. And all of a sudden you realize that The stuff they're starting to talk about is is dabbling in this quasi-Christian world that isn't really true to the scriptures. I loved my my grandmother. She's passed away. She was a a fun lady. We had a good joking relationship. I would make fun of her and she would laugh. And uh, I don't know if she got everything I was telling her, but um, I loved that woman and, and, and she loved Christ. I don't think she was ever really a part of good, solid churches. And inevitably, I had these conversations with her often about these people she would watch on TV <laughs> and this stuff that she would think. And, and she had a little bit of discernment. But, you know, I, I think there was probably more than a time or two she was sending money to some of these wackos. And, and uh, that wasn't a good situation for her. See, when a person is mature... When a person has been grounded in the faith and they're beginning to serve the body of Christ as God calls every Christian to serve, utilizing their gifts, they've learned their giftedness and they're serving the body of Christ. Paul says that what results from this, what results from this kind of maturity is that we're no longer children tossed to and fro. Oh, we see that bozo on TBN. And we know 
that what he's saying is false. We know that what he's saying is, is not according to the scriptures. We know that he is intentionally leading people to hell. But it goes beyond that because those are more easy to recognize. They say some pretty wild things. You begin to be able to discern the little things. You begin to understand doctrine. You begin to understand why the doctrines of grace matter. Why the sovereignty of God and salvation matters. You begin to continue to be built up with that so that you're not, you're not tricked by any kind of cunning or crafty way that the deceiver will bring through cunning men. You're not duped. You will not be tossed to and fro by those seeking to shipwreck your faith with trickery, craftiness, and a sea. Tend earnestly for the faith. That's what a mature Christian looks like. That's what results. It leads to be able to deal with problems in your life. Christians, when they become mature, they begin to learn how to deal with the sin in their lives. And, and I believe at times we all need counsel. There's no doubt about that. That's part of the job of the body of Christ. We all need counsel. But there's a point when you have to take what you're learning from the truth of the word of God and you need to be able to apply it and to do it. If you have to keep going back to the same thing over and over again and you're not able to make progress, you're not growing as you ought as a Christian. See, maturity begins to be able to, you begin to deal with things in your life. The, the storms that come, the difficulties that come, you're not shipwrecked by that stuff either. <laughs> You're not tossed to and fro by any of that stuff. You are going to contend earnestly for the faith. You're not going to be swayed by things like the prosperity gospel, the social gospel, the woke gospel, or any other form of the false gospel, but you're going to hold fast to the true gospel, and, and you're going to walk through the issues of life knowing that Christ really is real, and that I love him, and I'm going to worship him. I'm going to push off all of these other forms of the gospel. I'm going to push off all of the issues of life, all the difficulties, and I'm going to continue to strive for him. That's maturity. Maturity doesn't just result in being spiritually discerning. Maturity also results in, in a sincere declaration of the truth. You see that in verse 15. It says, Instead of being tossed here and there by waves of and carried around by every wind of doctrine. Instead of that, he says, but speaking the truth in love. People who understand the truth are able then to communicate that truth in love, resulting in mutual edification and the evangelism of the lost. He says, we are able to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. You have this continual metaphor in use here, this growing up into the head, this growing up into maturity. So you're not tossed to and fro, but now you are speaking the truth in love and people are growing up into the head who is Christ. This is truthful and compassionate presentation of the gospel, which is direct contrast to the deceit mentioned in verse 14. Instead of being tossed around and enticed by false teaching, a mature believer counters that truth by speaking the truth in love. That's what happens. It's a result Maturity. You see, a result of maturity is an authentic Christian testimony. It's an authentic Christian testimony. You know you're a Christian 
Your friends know you're a Christian. Your family knows you're a Christian. And the people you work with in the world know you're a Christian. Because it's an authentic, genuine testimony. When you speak, you speak in love. You're not tossed to and fro by all of the different deceitful things that are out there. But instead, you speak the truth in love. You speak to edify other believers in the church to help them grow. You speak words of truth in that sense and you speak words of truth in the sense that you are proclaiming the gospel to the world. This involves living a transparent life and speaking a message from God in a loving, compassionate way. When someone is marked by truth and love, they will not become victims of false teaching. And that happens to mature believers. Third, maturity results in being submissively dependent. Maturity results in being submissively dependent. Find this in verse 16. Being spiritually mature results in living in continual submission to the head, who is Christ in all things, that in every area of the Christian life. Just as the brain is the control center for the human body, Christ is the the control center for his church. He is the head. This implies his prominence and, and his preeminence and that he is, going, uh, he is the, the source of our growth and, and our ongoing supreme authority. It is Christ. It's back to Christ. Christ was mentioned in terms of, of the unity of our faith being wrapped around the knowledge of Christ. And it's for the purpose of us growing up into the head who is Christ. You see, maturity results in an uncompromising submission to the head of the church who is Christ. That's what happens when there's a collective body who is trained, who truly loves Christ, and who loves the people around them, and who is equipping the people around them, is that this corporate body is known by their submission to the Lordship of Christ in all things, to the head who is Christ. Christ being the head is the one who makes the body grow using the individual's gifts. He is the source. Remember verse 7, he gave gifts. Verse 11, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and preachers. He gave gifts. He is the power behind the growth. Christ is the one who causes the growth. You see that as he is the one who gave that main verb in verse 11 and it works all the way down and, and you have all of these things modifying that verb and, and it comes down to the end. In verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper work of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building of itself up in love. This is Christ who is causing that growth. And he's causing that growth by the means that he has prescribed, by putting those gifted men in the church. And those gifted men then teach and preach and train and disciple. And then other people begin to do that within the church, and it expands. And it leads to this maturity. And this maturity then shows itself in submission. It's this this growth. 
See, one who is mature understands and embraces this reality that it is Christ who is ahead, that it is Christ who causes the growth. And so there's this constant, continual submission to Christ. It comes back to Christ. In fact, I think we could break it down like this. That your maturity in the Christian life, maturity in the Christian life, is based upon your relationship with Christ. Simple, right? We would say that. We would repeat that. But that's what Paul is saying here, that it just centers completely and totally on Christ. You do things Christ's way. You obey him. You do these prescribed means, and and all of a sudden, people grow, and maturity happens. I think that's a necessary detour for us to think about. We need to understand that prescribed means, that God has gifted men to train the church to grow up into maturity, to grow up into love. Turn back to Titus 1. Look again in verse 5. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. See, God's ordained means for the church to grow into faithfulness and maturity hinges on biblical leadership being established and fulfilling their God-given mandate to equip the saints for ministry. Let's say that again. God's ordained means for the church to grow into faithfulness and maturity hinges on biblical leadership being established and fulfilling their God-given mandate to equip the saints for ministry. This was what Titus's mission was given him by the Apostle Paul. These churches in Crete desperately needed to be edified and equipped and brought to maturity by faithful leaders. That's what had to happen. Next time we will... Consider the three observations we find in these verses, which then provide the blueprint for what an established biblical leadership is to look like. But, but now you know why. For most of you, you were re- just reminded why. Leadership, godly biblical leadership is essential to the church because the goal is maturity. And that's the means that God has put in place for that. As we we close, let me just ask you. Are you seeking to grow into maturity in Christ by embracing the means that God has prescribed? In other words, some of those things I mentioned earlier. Are you being equipped for service? Are you being trained? Are Are you getting into those particular classes and things? Are you are you connecting with people? Are you taking what you learn Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and whatever other small groups and different things you're involved in Wednesday nights? Are you taking that? Are you chewing on that truth? Are you embracing it? Are you allowing the Spirit of God to use that in you and to mold you and make you more like Christ? 
Are you seeking to grow into maturity? Are, do you understand that that's the goal? Are you a faithful church member? Are you seeking to learn and use your gifts to serve the body that God has providentially placed you in? I mean, do you need to be baptized? I so many of you, it's been so awesome these last few baptism services. Like 90% has been college students. It's awesome. You guys embracing the, the reality that, yeah, I'm in Christ. I'm going to be baptized. I want to serve the church. I want to proclaim that I belong to Christ. Do you need to be baptized? Do you need to <clears throat> go through the membership process? Do you, do you need to do those things? Are you seeking to learn to use your gifts to serve the body that God has providentially placed you in? There are so many opportunities to serve here. Are you seeking to use your gifts to do that? Are you see, <coughs> excuse me, seeking to figure out your gifts? How God has gifted you? Are you embracing what is being taught and modeled to you by the leadership that God has ordained for this church? I'll close with this. Are you even a part of the church? I'm not asking you if you're here. I'm not asking you if you claim Countryside Bible Church as your church. I'm asking you, are you a part of the church? The church, the, the gathered ones, the chosen ones, the ones that God has redeemed for himself. Are you in Christ? Everything that we talked about, none of this, none of these steps take place. None of this happens. You don't grow into maturity because you haven't even been born yet if you're not in Christ. The Bible says very clearly that you need to come to Christ. He is the head. He is the source from which you grow into maturity. He is, he is how you begin to use everything that he's given you for his glory and honor, but he's also the source of you being saved. You have to come to him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not a part of the church, you're not in Christ, you need to come to him, to believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again, that he lived the perfect life for you in your place. Turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation today. And then you become part of the church. And then you become getting equipped. And you become an equipper. You grow into maturity. And you're a faithful Christian. Living a very fulfilling life for the glory of God to then go out and be salt and light in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for <clears throat> our time together just kind of laying this foundation this morning. I pray you'll take Lord, these, uh, these words that you use them for your glory and your honor, you'll take your truth. Lord, that, that truth will penetrate our hearts, that you conform us more to Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are not in Christ, that you will bring them to Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, that you'll give us a greater love for Christ. Help us to walk through these means that you have prescribed in your word. And Father, we know that all comes back to the the context of what we're studying. Lord, we're just thankful that you have you've given gifted leaders to the church so that this whole process takes place in the way that you have ordained. And that just brings us around full circle to giving you glory and honor and praise because of your kindness. You didn't leave us in our sin. You haven't left us to wonder what we're supposed to do in this life.
that you have graciously saved us and you are equipping us through your church, through your word. We love you. Thank you for our time together. In Christ's name, amen.